Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. History is our most important teacher. If you know history, you can use the past to understand the present and, in many cases, even predict the future. Historians have incessantly warned us not to disregard the lessons of history, lest we repeat failures that could have been avoided. That indisputable admonition is commonly found in childhood parables, writings of scholars, clever sayings of gurus, and advice from our parents and elders. Nevertheless, Humanity has habitually and often flagrantly ignored the obvious realities of past misdeeds, regardless of how costly or disastrous to the course of current events. American history of the revolutionary era is especially important. It allows us to understand how a group of passionate and moral individuals dedicated to individual freedom defeated the greatest military power on earth. Visualize for a moment the reality of life in the American colonies during the 1770s compared to today. Although there was business and commerce, life for the most part was barely above subsistence level. Everyone was a prepper for sure. They had to be just to survive. The colonists were subjects, not citizens, but subjects of the King of England, a tyrant who taxed them excessively to fund the exported wars of European monarchs and whose edicts violated basic rights and freedoms. As anger grew, zealots for freedom began to meet and discuss options and realized that a very unique set of conditions existed on the ground that favored revolution. There were no long-distance communications, nothing faster on land than horses, nothing faster on the ocean than sailboats, and nothing lethal further than a cannon or an arrow. It took 10 to 14 days to sail to England, So any communication between the king in England and his generals in America required about a month. There were plenty of hidden coves and valleys in which conspirators could gather and plan. 
I can imagine Samuel Adams saying those exact words to John Hancock and Dr. Joseph Warren. In fact, I'm sure Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and George Washington had the exact same conversation. Together, they decided the time was ripe to declare independence from Great Britain and its tyrant, King George, and establish a new country based on private property rights, individual freedom, and God's divine natural law. The actions they took were not without great personal risk. Yet our founders, great men of courage and faith, pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to win our freedom and establish our constitutional republic. King George considered signing the Declaration of Independence to be an act of treason for which the punishment was death. The risk, therefore, was very, very real. Most of us know the history of our famous founders, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Franklin, for example. They went all went on to have distinguished careers as framers of the Constitution and elected officials of our republic. Many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, however, did not fare as well, and that is the subject of our discussion. After our commercial break, I will return with Don Hendricks, a noted student of American history. We are back with Don Hendricks. Welcome as a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Thank you, Dr. Dan, for having me today. Hope we have a good conversation and a good time. Don wants me to tell you all that he's not a historian, but he has been reading American history for the past 55 years. He is also an American Revolutionary War reenactor and has been so for over 20 years. He is also related to three of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He is related to Benjamin Harrison, Carter Braxton, and Thomas Stone, by their great-grandfathers who were immigrants to America in the 1600s. Don, telling the life stories of individuals is what makes history real. How do you intend to do that for us? Well, what I'd like to do today, Dr. Dan, is uh, follow the progression of the war, the Revolutionary War, through the lives of some of the lesser-known founders, that we can see what happened with them and what, from some anecdotes of their lives, what they had to contend with by signing that document. So we already know that they were at every single sign, everyone who signed that document was at risk. Some did very well, but as you're going to tell us, some didn't do as well. Some got into some difficulties. So actually, let's start with the colony of New York. Tell us about some of those so it was founders in New York and what happened to them? Well, if I could back up just a hair, because I want to talk about what happened with the uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence. You know, it had to be unanimously agreed upon. And Delaware, on the 1st of July, found out, Thomas McKean found out that George Reed, the other, uh, the other delegate there, 
was not going to vote for the con vote for the Declaration of Independence, and therefore they would split their vote. Well, they had one other delegate that was Caesar Rodney, and Caesar Rodney was at home in Delaware. So McKean sent a riding messenger out there to him on the first, and he had to be back on the second, an 80-mile trip. And so as soon as Caesar Rodney got the news that he had to be there to secure the vote for independence for Delaware, he got on a horse and rode through a thunderstorm, through the night, 80 miles, arrived in the afternoon in Philadelphia, and was able to cast his vote for independence. Now, for Caesar Rodney, that was a pretty big thing because he had cancer on his face. And the only place that was treatable was in England. So in a sense, he was signing his death warrant as it pertained to can cancer. But he also said, I don't want my cancer to be healed by going to a place where they're going to remove my head to do it. So he had been a revolutionary for quite a while. <laughs> well, that's a great story, Don. Uh, and it shows an enormous amount of dedication. And it also shows, again, it demonstrates that at that era, the only way you could get from point A to point B was to ride a horse. And I imagine some of the, that ride through the night through a thunderstorm, at, mm. as fast as that horse would go, imagine that in and of itself was quite a risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was. And that's commemorated. If you remember, a long time ago, they started the state quarters in 1999. The first state gun was Delaware. And on the back of that quarter is Caesar Rodney riding his horse. So they honored honored Caesar Rodney with that with the quarter. Pretty well, that was obviously extremely important because had he not been there, that Delaware de delegation would have been deadlocked and would not have voted in favor of the declaration. So Caesar Rodney probably is responsible for the entire Declaration of Independence being signed. Yeah, in a sense, we can say that. That is true. And uh, because it had to be agreed upon unanimously, if one state voted against it, they were not going to declare independence. And they were just going to keep on going status quo with whatever troubles they were in. So that was quite a remarkable thing. Well, so... Um, Let's start with New York. New York was kind of um, the financial center of the of the of uh, the colonies at that point, and it was a very important place for the British. They felt they had to take New York, didn't they? Yeah. Yes, they did, and it was as easy for them to take because why? New York is made up of a bunch of islands at the southern end of New York: Staten Island, Manhattan Island, Long Island, and when you have the only Navy in the world at that point, and nobody to fight against you, that makes it rather easy to take a, a city like New York. So they did take it, took it rather easily. And what happened to the men who signed from New York? Now, many of your listeners may have their pocket constitution with them, and I would you know, encourage them to follow along as we go through these fellows' names, that we might flesh out their bones. And so in uh, New York, we want to look at two of them. One is Francis Lewis, and the other one is Lewis Morris. We'll deal with Francis Lewis first. He's a businessman. And all of these men, except for Samuel Adams, all the signers were wealthy men. You had to be wealthy in order to serve because you didn't get paid very well to serve in Congress, and it, and it would require a lot of time, plus transportation. So all these men are wealthy men, so they have everything to lose and nothing to gain from a revolution. And that's how 
that's how important this was to them. So uh, Francis Lewis is a businessman. He was actually born overseas and he migrated to the United States, I'm sorry, to the colonies. And, and now at the signing, he's 63 years old. He has a beautiful house in Brooklyn. And with the Battle of Brooklyn uh, and the way it happened, Washington, George Washington and the army is totally defeated. They have to retreat out of Brooklyn into Manhattan. And uh, as a result of this, uh, Francis Lewis house is burnt and his wife is actually taken captive. And she is held in a, a prison in New York in very bad conditions. It destroys her health. A few months later, she is exchanged for a wife of a naval officer. You, change, you had to exchange a person for a person. And uh, she does not recover, and so she will die shortly after that time. And he also loses his daughter, who happens to marry a Navy officer. So she, he will never see her again. So his family is busted up. He loses his wife and his home. And but he will come back again and rebuild after the war. And the other New Yorker is Lewis Morris. He's a plantation owner in the Bronx. Now, there aren't any many plantations in Bronx today. His was 2,000 acres large. And uh, as re Washington retreated up Manhattan, as the, uh, the, the uh, Continental Army had to retreat up Manhattan, headed north, Lewis Morris's house is in the way. And it, it gets destroyed as well as 1,000 acres of his, his trees are destroyed. So he, uh, that's what he had to face. And he would eventually return and rebuild his house and live out the rest of his life in New York. And from there, what did Washington do? They went all the way up to White Plains, about 28 miles north of New York City. They have the Battle of White Plains. Washington uh, it kind of stalemates at that point. And how General Howe brings his whole army back down to New York City and Washington retreats down through New York and into New Jersey. And he has to continue to retreat. And as he retreats through New Jersey, the British are right on his trail. Cornwallis is following Washington through New Jersey. So by time uh, the end of November, Washington is ready to cross the Delaware because the Delaware has no fords. You have to have boats. So if he can get across the Delaware, he'll be all right. So he does that, he gets his army across, but this leaves the New Jersey signers in, in a, a great risk. And who are those New Jersey signers? We have Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, and Abraham Clark. I wanna focus first on John Hart. John Hart is a farmer in Hopewell, New Jersey, which is north of Trenton. So he's not far from the line of fire. He has a large farm and he's an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur, he builds three, three different mills, a grist mill and a lumber mill and a fuller mill. And so he's a very popular man. He's in fact referred to as Honest John Hart. And he didn't even sell used cars, but he's Honest John Hart. And uh, he do, does very well. He's, he becomes a leader, even though he's not educated, he did not go to college. He becomes a leader in his community, becomes a judge, a local judge and uh, peacekeeper and magistrate and all these different things. And, uh, and then he's 
appointed by his area to go and sign the Constitution, which he does. I'm sorry, the Declaration of Independence, which he does, and he's 65 years old at the time. And uh, now in November, the end of November, the British come to his house and they're hunting him. Anybody whose name is on that paper is being hunted. And uh, his wife is on her deathbed and she implores him to flee with the youngest of their 13 children. And they get scattered in the woods. And John Hart is forced to live in Sour, on Sourland Mountain, which is a big, long mountain there in that part of New Jersey. And it has caves and it has boulders and it's places where people can hide. And he hides out there through the month of December with little food to eat and it's very cold and there's snow. And he, so he's quite exposed to the weather and that destroys his health. The British grant him amnesty if he will renounce the revolution. That's a pretty, pretty broad offer they give, give to him. He refuses. And after the battles of Trenton and then Princeton, the, the British retreat from that area and John is once again able to get to his home, which has been destroyed. His mills have been destroyed. So he, at 65 years old, he has to rebuild his life with his body in the condition it now is in. And he would die a few years later uh, on, on, his, on his family farm. Richard Stockton lives in, lives in Princeton and the British come through Princeton. He is, a, he is an attorney. He's 45 years old at the time that he signs the Declaration of Independence. He has one of the largest libraries in New Jersey. He's a very wealthy attorney and a very good attorney. Well, he's captured in December. He's jailed in horrible conditions again. We can't imagine the conditions in New York. His house and library are destroyed. He suffers horrib horribly. He is exchanged also the next year in 1777. He returns to um, Princeton. Of course, his home is basically destroyed. He has to rely on the gifts and uh, money from friends and relatives, but he never recovers his health and he'll die in February of 1781. So he will not uh, see the end of the revolution. And the last one in New Jersey is Abraham Clark. He's a clerk, hence Clark. He's, a, he's, no, he's 50 years old when he uh, signs the Declaration of Independence and he lives in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a place that also the British come through that and all his property is destroyed. One of his sons is captured and the British agreed to release his son if he would abandon the cause. He refuses even on the life of his son and uh, and he has to flee the area. He returns to New Jersey and lives there. And that is the end of the war. Well, that's a pause in the war. So at that point, uh, the war, which began in earnest uh, in Washington, uh, pardon me, in New York, and that it fought its way down, uh, down toward the South and ended up with these battles in New Jersey. And, and you've documented very well the hardships uh, that these signers um, had to endure. But of course, Don, not only those signers were enduring hardships, the people, the people, the non-combatants, they weren't treated very well either, were they? 
No, it was horrible. It was horrible, Dr. Dan. Uh, food, when army comes through your territory, they take all your food. And there were no ingles or anything in the round. They had to store their own food. Like you were said, they were, they were uh, preppers uh, in every sense of the word. And so they would lose their, uh, their food and their livestock, things like that, to feed the armies. And that was both the, the American army and the British and German armies. So it was New Jersey was really had a really tough time through the uh, beginning of the war. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, everything gonna be all right this morning.